Praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. That's the point. That we live for the praise of God. We live to magnify his holy name. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. So we want to do that. We want to please the Lord with our worship this morning. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, here's the charge as we get ready to worship God this morning. Here's the charge. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. Let your hearts revive. You who seek God, Church of Jesus Christ, let your hearts revive. And let's worship the Lord this morning. And as the body of Christ, let's spend some time together in prayer now. As I said a moment ago, Acts 4, they lifted their voices together to God. So let's go after crying out to God, calling out to the Lord together. Let's lean in and do that. Uh, one thing you'll hear me pray about and for this morning is the Tisberries. Uh, of course, we often do, but they're actually with us here this Sunday. So if you get a chance, uh, spend some time and talking to the Tisberries. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that we can come before you right now. You are a merciful God to allow us to come into your presence, Lord. And not just to come, not, not even to, to come wondering if you're going to accept us, but, but rather you told us to come boldly into the throne of grace. Not because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Not because of our actions, but because you, Lord Jesus, have died for sinners so that we could be brought near. And God, we give you praise this morning. We give you praise this morning that because of Christ, that because of that glorious, beautiful, bloody cross, we could sing to you and we can pray to you and it's worship accepted. Thank you so much for hearing us this morning. God, we praise you for this glorious gospel. We worship you for this good news that though we deserve condemnation, and though we deserve wrath, and though we were sinners then and, and, and we still have sin even now, that You made a way. That You sent Your Son to die for the wretched ones. For the weak, Lord, and the lowly. That those who deserve judgment, Lord, You brought grace and mercy through Christ. Thank You so much for the Gospel. And God, I pray that You would keep our hearts in that place. Lord. Your Word speaks about people that go after certain things and then they don't hold fast to the head. God, spare us. Keep us from that. Keep us from being people that don't hold fast to the head. But God, as the good Father that You are, I pray, Lord, that You would put Your hand under our chin and lift up our eyes to see the Messiah. To see our Savior. To be mesmerized by His glory. God, make us true worshipers. Grow us as true worshipers of Christ. God, Your Word, You promised, Lord, You said if we draw near to You, that You would draw near to us. And we're asking You for that this morning. God, we're drawing near to You right now. Through Your Word, through singing to You, Lord, through prayer, we're, we want to draw near to You. It's You that we want. More than all the world has to offer. And even more than all the gifts, Lord, and blessings that you pour out, God, we want you. So we draw near to you this morning, God. Would you please draw near to us? 
You promised, Lord, that if we loved you and, and obeyed your commandments, that you would manifest your presence to us. God, come and draw near to us and manifest your presence to us this morning, please. And God, I pray that day after day, tomorrow and the next day, God, and every day after, Lord, that you would make us a people that draw near to you in the secret place. When no one else is around and no one else is looking, Lord, that you would make us people that constantly long to get alone with our Savior. And God, I pray that in those moments you would draw near to us. Make us a people of your presence, Lord. God, thank you so much for this church. God, grow us and keep us. God, I pray that you would use us as a church to spread your glory all across this globe. God, make us a people that boldly proclaim your gospel. Let your praise continually be in our lips, Lord. Help us to be able to say that we will bless the Lord at all times and your praise shall continually be in our mouths, Lord. I pray that you would do that. And let your gospel go forward. And Lord, lift up your name as the God of salvation in this place. I pray that you would save souls in this city. That through all the different ministries, God, from loving and training children and leading a family to abortion ministry, Lord, to ministry in our jobs, Lord, in our schools, or wherever we're at, God, any kind of evangelism, God, please put your hand on it. Let many be saved. Save souls, God. Lift up your name as the God of salvation. God, I pray that you would grant us strong families, Lord, and that generation after generation after generation after us, when we're dead and gone, Lord, would rise up and glorify your holy name. Build this church, God, generation after generation of children that are raised up that love you and adore you. God, I lift up the nations to you. Lord, unreached people, people that have yet to hear the name of Christ. God, help us to get your gospel to them. God, I pray for our missionaries that are already out now. That you, that you, God, would put your hand on them, God. You'd encourage their souls. That they would do ministry from a place of fullness. That they would be filled with all the fullness of you. And they would preach your glorious gospel, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that people would be saved. And the churches would be planted, Lord, where there are none. God, we lift up the Tisberries to you. Thank you so much, God, for letting them be here with us this morning. And God, I pray that their time here, that their time here, Lord, would be refreshing to their souls. That you would give them times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. God, I pray that their love for you would increase. That their hunger and thirst for you, Lord, would, would increase more and more. That you'd make them more like Christ during this time. And God, give them wisdom and direction for the future. Use them for your glory. And God, I pray that you give them rest. That you're going to do that. You promised, Lord, that you began a good work in them. And you would complete it until the last day. Lord, please help us right now as we sing. Lord, don't let us be those that honor you with our lips, but our hearts far from you. Let us worship. And God, I pray that you be with our brother Blake as he preaches your word. Holy Spirit, please, please speak to us through your word. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. 
My name is Blake Jeter, and it's my privilege this morning to continue our study in 1 Timothy. But before we do, let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to come before your throne this morning and seeing that you will reign forever. Lord, help block out distractions in our lives this morning. Help block out the cares of this world and help us to hear from heaven. Help us to hear the inspired words from you this morning that can make wise the simple. Lord, help me as I teach your word. Give the plain sense of it and apply it to our lives. Help me do it in the power that you supply, that you might be glory. In Christ's name, amen. So turn with me to chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. Chapter 6 of 1 Timothy. As we were getting together uh, this summer to divvy up these passages uh, back in May, one of the things that we talked about was Oddly enough, for two years in a row, Nick Stafford had got the passages on money. So uh, he was like, please don't let that happen again. So uh, I happened not to be at the meeting where they divvied up the passages, so uh, money came to me. We gave gender roles to the Moldovian and then money to the guy who didn't show up. Well, this morning, uh, Cotton Mather says that the great design of the preacher is to restore the throne and the dominion of Christ in the souls of men. To restore the throne and dominion of God in the souls of men. And that's what I hope to do this morning. And as I was thinking about this passage, I remembered when this happened in my life. Um, many of you know where you were when you were saved. Some of you don't. Many of you know when you maybe heard the doctrines of grace for the first time. Uh, some folks in the room may know when they heard a Paul Washer sermon for the first time. One aspect of my Christian life that I remember very vividly is in 2008 when I heard a sermon on the rich young ruler. If you know the story, it's alive in the Gospels. In Mark chapter 10, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now this is a great question. If somebody comes to you and says, what must I do to turn eternal life? I think we'd love that question. We'd say, repent and believe the gospel. I bet if Jesus would have given him a prayer to pray, he would have prayed it. I bet if Jesus would have given him a decision to make, he would have made the decision. If he would have given him some agreeable terms, he probably would have acquiesced. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus isn't interested in a surface-level decision from the rich man. He's interested in his heart. So what does Jesus do? Jesus rattles off the second table of the law and says, obey them. Well, the rich man triumphantly says, I've done this since my youth. Check, check, check. But if you read Jesus' words carefully, he leaves out one commandment. He leaves out one commandment, the tenth, thou shalt not covet. He doesn't list that one off 
Because he knows if he asks the rich man if he's coveted, he'll say, no, I haven't since my youth. But Jesus is interested in getting deeper. So he comes around on the backside and he says, let me apply this. And he says, sell all that you have, give to the poor and follow me. Now, what is he doing here? He's putting this man to the test. He's saying, do you want God or do you want stuff? Do you have another God before me is the question he's asking. You see, the 10th commandment is a fitting end to the 10 commandments. If the first commandment is, you shall have no gods before me, the 10th commandment puts that to the test. So Jesus is asking this man, who's his God? And that's what this text is asking us this morning. And if you go to Mark chapter 10, you see how this rich man responds. It's one of the worst verses in all the Bible. This is what verse 22 in Mark 10 says. Disheartened, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This man looks at the king of glory and says, mm, I'll take my stuff. And when I was 20 years old and I was evaluating the idolatry in my own heart, if someone would have asked me, have you coveted? I would have given a simple answer. But what Jesus is interested in is testing you to say, what do you put before me? And for the rich man, it was his stuff. And for all of human history, this has been the pattern. Human history is littered with men and women who have chosen the God of their own bellies, the God of self, and the God of stuff over God. In Judges chapter 17, a Levite abandons ministry in the presence of God to find a place in the house of Micah for 10 shekels and a shirt. What a terrible trade. Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 hold back their stuff from God. They lie to God and they're killed for it. And now when we consider the teachers here in Ephesians, in Ephesus, they've done the same thing. They've gone after the God of money, the God of self, rather than God. There's one more example I want us to consider this morning before we jump into our text. And that's the example of Demas. You see, just as if the rich young ruler would have answered in the affirmative on a simple question, when you apply it, it's much different. And that's the same way in our lives. If I was to ask the question this morning, Grace Community Church, do we love money? We might be quick to think about a relative or a boss or somebody we know and not ourselves. Because this sin is deceitful. It starts small and makes us drift. It might crop up in a way that you don't expect. And that's what happened to Demas. Demas was a fellow worker with Paul. We see him as a fellow worker in Colossians and in Philemon. But in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he deserts Paul. And why? It says, for he had a love for the present world. He drifted. He found the God of the world, the God of self. We should linger this morning long over the example of Demas. So this morning, don't allow yourself off the hook. Don't let me allow you off the hook. We should 
watch ourselves and see that this sin creeps in and helps us drift. It can start small. We're too busy. We get more so it takes more and more time to maintain. We listen to preaching without conviction. We hear but we don't apply. Our desire for evangelism may start to wane. We start holding on to our stuff. We rationalize. And we wake up 10 years from now and we have a lot of stuff but little affection for God. It doesn't happen overnight like the seed on the path. It happens like the seed among the thorns. Where the thorns come up, they choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. So this morning, as we consider 1 Timothy 6, lean in with me. Life and death, the stakes of eternity, are at stake. And let Paul instruct us. So let's let's read the text here in 1 Timothy slowly. Starting in verse 3, and I'll read to verse 10. Verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction among the people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing or any we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Our text this morning can be broken down into three major headings. In verses 3 through 5, we have the motives of false teaching. In verse 6, we have Paul's remedy to Timothy. And then in verses 7 through 10, we have two explanations to prove the point. So let's take it one by one. The first point this morning is the motive of false teaching. In verse 3, Paul says this, If anyone teaches a different doctrine, this is the second time the words different doctrine has appeared in this text. First in chapter 1, finally in chapter 6. It's bookends to Paul's argument to Timothy. This will be the third time that he addresses the Ephesian false teachers. First in chapter 1, second in chapter 4, and finally here. In chapter 1, he reveals the content of false teaching. They're giving themselves to speculation, myths, and genealogies. They're using the Bible as a springboard, not as the truth. And in chapter 4, we see another false teaching, which is they're using not only speculation, but plausible heresy. They're twisting the law into a different view of ethics. They say the path to godliness is through abstaining from foods or marriage. But now here in chapter 6, we take a different turn. He highlights a new dimension 
which is their motives. If the discussion of the false teaching in chapter 1 and 4 is on the nature of the false teaching, the discussion in chapter 6 is on their motives. It's on their motives. And this makes sense. We see one of our major themes through 1 Timothy is the complementary nature of doctrine and life. You can't have one without the other. And what we see here in verse 3 is that this different doctrine does not agree with the sound words of Jesus or accord with godliness. It's failed both doctrine and life. And as we think about false teaching in all the epistles, we often focus on the what, but not the why. The what, but not the why. And Paul wants us now to focus on the why. Why does false teaching occur? Have you ever wondered why false teaching happens in the church? Why do pastors and teachers supplant the gospel of Jesus with other things? Why would these teachers in Ephesus leave the infinite riches of Christ to teach on genealogies of Moses? Why would these teachers advertise a next level of sanctification rather than gospel-centered sanctification? Or in our day, why would pastors and teachers come up with clever sermon series, light shows, and entertainment rather than the steady diet of the Word of God? Paul gives us the answer in in chapter 6, verse 5. He says, it's a game. It's a game. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. You see, they see this type of teaching as a way to gain for themselves rather than gaining for the church. They're committing the sin of the rich young ruler, breaking the first and the tenth commandment. They covet themselves and desire for themselves, not God. And what's sad about this is that Paul actually predicts this. He predicts it. In Acts chapter 20, we see that Paul spends three years with these people. Three years in Ephesus, laboring. And after three years, he brings them together. And they're on the ground, kneeling, weeping, and praying. And he gives them a charge. He gives them a charge. In verse 28 and 29 of Acts chapter 20, he says this. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. But fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from your own selves speak twisted things to draw disciples after themselves. Can you imagine Paul's anguish as he writes this letter? He is addressing teachers that knelt and wept with him in Ephesus. And he says that they're now teaching false doctrine. What's that false doctrine? Chapter 1 and 4. What's their motives? Chapter 6, selfish gain. Verse 29 of Acts 20 says they are seeking to bring people after themselves. They want their own followers. They didn't pay careful attention to themselves but they catered to themselves. So, 
what is the result of this type of selfish gain by these teachers? Let's look at verses 4 and 5. He, that is the teachers that teach this doctrine, are puffed up with conceit and don't understand. They have unhealthy cravings that produce, here's a few things that they produce. Envy, dissension, slander, suspicions. Can't you see how this happens? In a church or any, in any organization, when false teaching or controversy gets stirred up, you have to pick sides. What do you believe? What do you believe? Divisions happen. And you start to question other people's motives. People might become envious. People might slander. And what that produces is an environment of what verse 5 says, constant friction. There's tension in the church. There's friction because of the speculative teaching. This is the anti-pattern of the church that was purchased by the blood of Jesus. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he says that pastors and teachers are giving gifts for the building up of the saints for the work of the ministry. To mature manhood, to unity, so that they won't be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. But what's happened in this church is they're being tossed to and fro by this false doctrine. They're not brought into unity, into the work of the ministry. They're brought, in, brought into division and immaturity. It says that they have quarrels and they're depraved in mind and deprived of the truth because of these teachers. Later in verse 10, you'll see that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Well, the love of money has caused these teachers to stir up controversy and speculation for gain. And I wanted to think of an example that would demonstrate my point. And so I'm going to use a story from Adam Burks. Um, Adam tells often of a church he used to attend back in the day before he was a believer, where if they ever fell into any kind of uh, need for revitalization, more numbers and, and in the church, they would go out and get an outside preacher or outside teacher. What would they normally teach on? What did this teacher that they would bring in to revitalize the church teach on? The book of Revelation. Because if you want to pack the room, teach on the speculative nature and myths from Revelation, the mark of the beast, and who this nation is and who that nation is. It stirs up controversy. It stirs up people's interest, but it doesn't feed the flock. And what did this pastor or teacher get for his troubles? $70,000 for a few teachings. He lines his pocket, and the church gets filled with controversy. This is the anti-pattern of the church of God. This is not an example of a self-sacrificing shepherd, but a self-serving one. Listen to this from Ezekiel 34 about self-serving shepherds. Ezekiel 34. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel and say to them, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not the shepherds feed the sheep? You eat fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you don't feed the sheep. And listen to this. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured 
you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. But with force and harshness you've ruled them. My sheep were scattered, and they wandered over the mountains and every high hill. You see, because these teachers went after self-gain to clothe themselves rather than clothe the flock, the sheep are scattered. They're tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. It's as if these teachers are, are saying not what the psalmist says. The psalmist says, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. They're saying, incline my heart to creativity and speculation so that I can have gain. They have a God of money, a God of themselves. And what Paul is identifying here is it's not enough to just identify the nature of false teaching. You have to identify the root. It's not enough to cut off the branches of false teaching. We have to uncover the root. And the root is that their motivation. And that's why he's going to turn the corner here in the next verse and say, if it goes down to the root, I have to address it at the root. So the remedy that Paul gives Timothy is at the root level. And it's godliness with contentment. Godliness with contentment. So these teachers imagine godliness is a means to gain. But Paul says here in verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. If you want to know how to remedy the disease of selfish gain and covetousness, it's with contentment. It's with contentment. What this remedy also presupposes is that there is discontentment. There's discontentment. Just as doctrine and life go together, godliness and contentment go together. They can't be separated. And what these teachers were falling into was discontentment. And it gives rise to sin. Isn't discontentment a pervasive problem today? We are the most connected country, the most connected people in the human history, and yet we're the most lonely. We're the most prosperous nation in the history of the world, and yet we want more. We have a crisis of loneliness and discontentment. James 1 says sin starts at the desire level. Desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and when it's fully grown, it brings forth death. Well, as Dustin has often said, if every heresy is born in someone's quiet time, almost every sin is born out of discontentment. And when many people think of discontentment, we immediately think about money and of stuff. But that's not always what we should think about. Grace Community Church, are you discontent this morning? Do you have a heart of discontentment? Are you potentially dissatisfied with your job, your compensation, your duties? Are you unhappy with your family life? Are you unhappy with your spouse or lack thereof? Are you unhappy with your kids or lack thereof? Are you discontent but you don't really know why? 
When you try to put your finger on it, it eludes you. And for months and months, you've been down, but you can't put your finger on it. This is discontentment. And discontentment is the breeding ground for future sin. Discontentment is the soil that brings forth the fruit of money and the love of money. In preparing for this sermon, I read a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment by Jeremiah Burroughs. Highly recommend it. And he gives a definition of Christian contentment that I want us to focus on this morning. He says, Christian contentment is the sweet, inward, quiet, and gracious frame of spirit which freely and delightfully submits to the Father's wisdom and his disposal in every condition. It's that inward frame of spirit that freely and delightfully submits to God in his disposal in every circumstance. So this morning, as we consider Paul and his remedy for Timothy, I want us to consider what it means to be content. Where does the fruit of contentment come from? Because I'm convinced that's the secret to a lot of our troubles in the church today. So I want us to consider three aspects of Christian contentment. First, it's inward. Christian contentment is inward. There are few things in our lives that's as private as money and self. Who a man is in his private life is often the measure of a man. Our view of money and stuff is a penetrating look into the extent of our rebellion against God. Contentment must be inward because our sin is inward. And it cannot depend on our circumstances. It cannot. As I'm preaching this morning, many of you are probably thinking about your contentment. And the most obvious thing for us to think about is, I will be content if. I will be content if I have enough money in my emergency fund. I would really be content if... I had this type of job. I would really be content if my three-month-old becomes a six-month-old. <laughs> I would be really content if this ailment or this illness went away. But you see, true Christian contentment cannot depend on if-then statements. It must be objective. It must be an inward frame of spirit. Second, Contentment must be learned. It must be learned. In Philippians, Paul gives us the best example of the secret of contentment. In chapter 4, verse 11 and 12, he says, For I have learned in whatever situation to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. And in every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty, hunger, Abundance and need. He learned contentment. And it wasn't based on the circumstances, low or abundance. You see, contentment cannot be, it is not the natural state of man. The natural state of man, you feel it, is envy, it's comparison, it's strife, 
It's covetousness. It's love for money. But contentment is supernatural. It's learned. You can learn doctrine easily, but you can't learn contentment easily. It's an experiential knowledge. The precious things of this earth must be cultivated. If you want crops, you have to plow. If you want flowers, you have to garden. And if you want contentment, you have to cultivate it. Contentment is one of the flowers of heaven. And if you need it, and if you have to have it, it must be cultivated. So Grace Community Church, let us not indulge this notion that contentment can be found easily. It has to be learned. It has to be cultivated. But how? Where does it come from? And that's the third aspect of contentment that I want us to see this morning. It's inward. It has to be learned. And it comes from the gospel. It comes from the gospel. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul says that he's learned the secret of contentment. But he gives us the secret in chapter 3. In chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, he says this. Whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count all things as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And for his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them all as rubbish that I might gain Christ. That's his secret. Simply put, the secret to learning contentment is learning the surpassing worth of Jesus. Now contrast that to the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler, he has the surpassing worth of his stuff. And when he meets Jesus, he counts Jesus as rubbish that he might keep his stuff. Now contrast that to Paul. Paul has gain. He has the synagogue. He has born at the right time. But he counts all those things as rubbish when he meets Christ. Grace Community Church, do you see the surpassing worth of Jesus? Do you see it? Or are you discontent this morning? Do you know what the first sin in the Bible was? The first sin in the Bible, it was discontentment with God. Adam and Eve living in perfect fellowship with God. Perfect communion with God. But the adversary comes to him and says, Are you sure that God says you can't eat from this tree in the garden? And this is what the word says. The woman saw the tree was good for food and the eyes, and it was delight, and it could make one wise. She wanted more. They wanted more. And cosmic rebellion against the throne of God started with discontentment. A family who wanted gain rather than God. And the whole world is plunged into destruction and despair because of this sin. Romans 5 says that because sin entered the world through one man, death through sin, so death spread to all men for all have sinned. We lost our contentment. We lost the contentment of Genesis chapter 2 for the death and despair of the rest of the Bible. 
in all directions. Our peace turns to war, our dependence to independence, our own uh, desires to our desires for ourselves. And we accrued a record of debt that we could not repay. But what is the glorious nature of the gospel? Is that he doesn't provide us a second chance. He provides us a second Adam. He doesn't give us a second chance. He gives us a second Adam. Jesus is the truer and better Adam. When he is faced with discontentment in the wilderness, when Satan uses the same device he used in the garden, he passes the test where Adam failed. Jesus accrues a record of righteousness over 33 years, and he comes to the cross, and he gives it to us if we believe in him. And our record of death and despair and discontentment that deserves death and wrath is put on him. And a great exchange takes place. And Jesus drinks down every wrath of God and then gives us eternal life. He says it is finished and there's an inheritance that's undefiled and reserved for us. How can we be discontent? We've been given life, eternal life. How can we then look at Jesus and say, Mm, I'll take my stuff. He who did not spare his own son, how will he not also with him give us all things? Grace Community Church, we should be the most contented men and women in the world. Sinclair Ferguson says that Christian contentment is the direct fruit of having no ambition higher than the Lord and being at his disposal. And that's what Paul's communicating to Timothy. He's saying, if you think that this over here is gain, let me tell you about great gain. And that's godliness with contentment. And which one's more, gain or great gain? I can do that math. Then, as Paul is giving Timothy the remedy to the disease of selfishness and gain, he gives two more reasons, two more arguments to drive his point home. Because we need it. Two explanations, and they come in verses 7 through 10. Two explanations in verses 7 through 10. The first is consider the end of your life. And the second is consider your eternity. Let's take them one by one. Put your eyes on verses 7 and 8. I'm going to read them. Four. So he's given an argument. Four. We brought nothing into the world, and we can take, cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Paul is essentially saying, in Mississippi terms, you can't take a U-Haul after your hearse. You can't take any of this with you. All of the gain of the false teachers will not help them in the end. In Deuteronomy 32, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, Moses says of Israel, I wish they were wise, that they understood this, that they, concern, they discerned their latter end, that they would consider their latter end. There's a certain wisdom that comes from considering the latter end. And there's a certain foolishness that comes from not considering it. 
Jonathan Edwards in his 70 resolutions had one resolution that's always stuck out to me. Resolved to think much on all occasions of my own dying and the common circumstances which attend death. Grace Community Church, how often do you meditate on your own dying? How often do you meditate on the end of your life? This is what Paul's instruction is to Timothy. Consider the end. One of the most vivid pictures in all the Bible about considering your latter end comes from Luke chapter 12. Jesus, as he's setting up this story, says that we should be on guard against covetousness and that life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. And then he gives a story. What's that story? He tells a story of a man who has an amazing harvest. Such a harvest that it doesn't even fit in his existing barns. So what does he do? He doesn't give it away. He tears down that barn and builds bigger barns. And in Luke 12, 19, he says to himself, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. If you know the story, you know Jesus turns this story on its head. He calls this man a fool. And he says, fool, this night your soul was required of you. All these things you've prepared, whose will they be? Such is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. A man gathers possessions and wealth, but doesn't realize that that night his life is required of him and God calls him a fool. He didn't consider his latter end. He had other plans. And this is how Jesus describes the danger of covetousness in our lives. We think it's going to satisfy us in the end, but it never delivers. Our money and possessions give us an illusion of comfort, but they can't deliver. Recently, I was reading a, a letter uh, after uh, billionaire old tycoon uh, T. Boone Pickens passed away last month. He published a letter upon his death. And what I was struck by in this letter was it was almost like a modern-day Ecclesiastes. He takes, in one part of the letter, a poem called The Indispensable Man from the 1900s. And I want you to read a few lines of this and his commentary on it and see how it applies to this passage. Listen. Sometime, when you feel that you're going, would leave an unfillable hole, just follow these simple instructions. And see how they humble your soul. Take a bucket and fill it with water. Put your hand in it up to the wrist and pull it out. And the hole that's remaining will be the measure of how you're missed. You can splash all you want when you enter. You can enter and stir what water galore. But stop and you'll find it in no time. Then it's quite the same as before. And he, commentate, he comments on this poem and says, you be the measure of how long the bucket remembers me. A billionaire American tycoon thinks on his life and he compares it to a bucket that when you put your hand in the water and pull it out, nothing changes. And that's his life. 
vanity of vanities. At the end of his life, his, night was requi- this, his life was required of him, and his money and his stuff couldn't save him. John Piper says that covetousness lets you down when you need it the most. And when this man needed it the most, it let him down. It will let us down too. Many of you may know this, but in 2012, uh, on April 1st, I suffered a stroke. I had a, a major blood clot in my brain and uh, I thought everything was fine, and then in a moment, a neurologist burst into my room and told me he didn't understand how I was still alive. Um, and within five minutes, I was in the back of an ambulance going down the middle of Atlanta in traffic, which that was the quickest way I've ever gotten through Atlanta. And when I was being loaded in the back of the ambulance, I remember them asking me, what do you need? What do you, what do you want? What do you want? And Many of you know how much I love my phone, uh, but uh, in that moment, it seemed inconsequential. All I asked for was my Bible. That's all. As I was facing death and eternity, it's extremely clarifying. All I wanted was my Savior. That's all that makes sense when you get to the end. Richard Baxter, Vody Bacham, I don't know who said it. But he said, a pastor's job can be summarized in a simple phrase, to help people prepare for death. That's what Paul's doing in this letter. He's preparing Timothy for death and saying, godliness with contentment is great gain. You can't take any other stuff with you. Grace Community Church, are you prepared for death? Have you considered your latter end? You won't be able to take it with you. Then Paul provides one more argument. One more argument. Not just consider the end of your life, but consider your eternal destination. Consider eternal life. Consider your eternity. And that's what he highlights here in verses 9 and 10. Read with me. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and into a snare, into many senseless and hurtful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all evils. And it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Both verses 9 and 10 start with the same sentence construction. A subject, an action, and a result. In verse 9, it's the desire to be rich. In verse 10, it's the love of money. In verse 9, they fall into temptation. In verse 10, they wander away from the faith with the same result. In verse 9, they're plunged into ruin and destruction. In verse 10, they're pierced with many pangs. Paul is saying that the end of your discontentment and then the fruit of desiring to be rich is eternal destruction. Life and death are at stake. If you give in to this desire, you'll be committing the same sin of the rich young ruler, looking at God and the desiring stuff. 
let's break this down a little bit further. What do we mean by the love of money? First, I want to correct a popular quip, quip on this particular passage where people like to say money is the root of all kinds of evil. That's not what this passage says. Paul and Jesus will not let us set an arbitrary definition upon money. The question isn't how much money do you have, it's how much do you love it. The issue of money isn't the money, it's your affection. It's not the money, it's how do you feel about the money. In fact, someone can be poor and yet love money. And someone can be rich and not love money. The problem isn't what money do you have, it's who's your God. And we don't have any T. Boone Pickens in this church. Uh, my job on the building committee would be much easier if we did. Um, but it will be easy for you in the next few minutes as we wrap up to think about him or think about others. But I want us to take this opportunity to do some self-evaluation, some self-examination. Because this can start in very small ways that you don't expect. Here are a few questions as you diagnose your soul and I diagnose my soul. Do you want money more than just doing a good job at work? When you think about being rewarded at work, do you dream of getting more compensation or more impact for Christ and for others? If you lost some of your money, how would that affect you? Would your world be over? Or would you be content? Are you tempted to sin to obtain it? Have you lied on an expense account? Overclaimed on your taxes? And let's make it more specific for this church. Does it hurt you to give your money away? Do you rationalize with your generosity? You see, generosity and a love for money are incongruent. They can't live together. Like light and darkness, oil and water, a person who loves money holds on to it, rationalizes and doesn't give it away. It hurts them to give it away. The beginning of the love of money could start with a hesitancy to give, a closed fist to giving. C.S. Lewis famously said, that courage is the form of every virtue at its testing point. In practical application, that means you don't really know how much virtue do you have until you're tested. What that means is if you think you're loving, you'll find out when it really hurts to love somebody. If you think you're truthful, you'll find out when it costs you a lot to tell the truth. And in military terms, a lot of people say they think they're brave, but when you get to the battlefield and you're asked to lay your life down, that's when you find out if you're brave. In the same way, the love of money, you don't think you love money, just wait till you're tested. Wait until you obtain it. When you think about the raise you want or the emergency fund you need, 
What happens when you finally get it? Are you content? Or do you want more? That's the problem with idolatry. That's the problem with the things of this world. They promise everything, but yet they fail to deliver. Many of you know that I'm a a consultant that works for state and local governments. And I've been doing this now for about eight years. And people are always asking me this question. What have you learned working with governments? You know, give me a great story or give me, um, you know, something about how inefficient it is. And, you know, what I've begun to tell people The biggest thing I've learned in working with state governments for the last eight years is the deceitfulness of riches and power. I've seen men ascend to the highest offices and positions in state and local government and throw it all away. A small compromise here, a small compromise there, a love for money and power, and they are pierced with many pangs. Haley Barber once said that Absolute or power corrupts, but absolute power is kind of cool. And that's what a lot of people view when they get into those positions. It begins to corrupt. They make slow and busy compromises. And the end is eternal destruction. It's the root of all kinds of evil. Not just quarrels, slanders, and dissensions from verses 4 and 5, but eternal destruction and eternity away from God. that's what Paul's arguing here. He's saying godliness with contentment is great gain because you can't take it with you. Consider your end. And the end fruit of the love of money is compromises that take you away from God. So I have one exhortation as we wrap up this morning. One exhortation as we wrap up this morning. And I want to apologize to Ryan, who's going to be teaching on verse 11 next week, but I couldn't help myself. The demand of verses 3 through 10 shouldn't just sit in self-evaluation. They demand a response. Paul, talking to Timothy, didn't want him just to sit in self-diagnostic questions about money and contentment. He wanted him to respond. And what was the response? We see it here in verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. He doesn't use flowery words like be a good servant, hold fast to the faith like you see in chapter 1 or chapter 4 and 5. He gives them a command. Flee these things. Run from them. This morning, as you're listening to my word, don't leave here just under conviction, but with a resolve to respond. What are you going to do today to flee this sin? Many of you know that uh, um, this coming Friday, we're going to, in Madison, uh, begin reading Pilgrim's Progress together. Uh, So a group of guys, not too late this Friday. um, Seamless plug for this book. Um, But it gives a great example of what it looks like to flee. Early in the book, Christian, who's the main character, uh, we zone in on him. He has a burden on his back. He's reading a book and he realizes he's under condemnation. And he doesn't know what to do. He encounters a man called Evangelist on the road. And he realizes he's condemned to die. 
And he, the evangelist tells Christian, if this be your condition, why do you stand still? He's like, well, where do I go? He gets a parchment and it says, fly from the wrath to come. And he's like, well, where do I go? And the evangelist points him to the wicked gate, to the light, to eternal life. And what does Christian do? If you know the story, he takes off running. He sticks his fingers in his ear and says, life, life, eternal life. And when they're running, when he's running and they're telling him to come back, come back, he won't do anything but ignore him. He says, life, life, eternal life. This is what it looks like to flee. To stick your fingers in the ears of the world and put yourself running to eternal life. Grace Community Church, I want to ask you a question this morning. Will you stand still? Or will you stick your fingers in your ears and say, life, life, eternal life? Don't let the love of money and the desire for selfish gain sit idly in your heart for one more minute. Run. Flee. Don't just linger over the story of Demas, but run from it. For visitors in the room who may not know Christ, I want to address you for a second. Don't just linger over the story of the rich young ruler, but respond to it. Have you been like the rich young ruler and looked at Jesus, but don't want to give up your stuff? Let me ask you this morning to ponder your eternity. Every man and woman in this room may not be a missionary, may not have a job, may not become a father or a mother, but every person in this room will meet death, just like every man and woman in human history. And if you're outside of Christ this morning, one day in a short time, whether months or years, you'll have to give an account for your life. And each one of us in this room has accrued a record of debt that we can never repay. And when we come to the end, we're either going to pay it ourselves or someone else is going to pay it for us. And if you're in Christ, he's already paid that record of debt for you. It's finished. But if you're not in Christ this morning, you'll take your possessions that you have on this earth and try to pay your own debt. And it won't, it won't work it won't be able to repay your debt. So this morning, run to Christ. Don't spend any more time trifling with the things of this world. Put your fingers in your ears and say, life, life, eternal life. Run to Christ. As we wrap up, it's not just running from something, it's running to something. If the remedy in verse 6 it's contentment. Paul provides, uh, or the Bible provides one more layer in the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 13, he says that your life should not be, your life should be free from the love of money, and it should be content. And then he says the word for, so he's given an argument. What's the argument? He says, for he will never leave you or forsake you. You're not just running from something, you're running to something. If you believe in the Lord Jesus, he's told you and told me he'll never leave us or forsake us. So we don't need anything else. 
We should be the most contented people in the world because we have God. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. And thank you that you have told us that you will never leave us or forsake us. That you've given us life and eternal life. Help us to spurn the deceitfulness of riches and discontentment and learn to be content with what we have. Help us to see the surpassing worth of Jesus. And let us not be the same. In Christ's name, amen.